right, there we go. Welcome everybody to this year, our 2021 live stream extravaganza, the very first stream of the week. We have a packed, packed schedule. Uh, as you may have just noticed on the on the screen here, we have uh, we're going to be talking about the state of the filmmaking industry, uh, kind of at large. And we have with us today Gary Adcock from Filmscape Chicago, our internal expert Matt Bach, and down in the corner there. Oh, or there, <laughs> Ryan Connolly from Triune, <laughs> Triune Films, or has it, I feel like I get that. Yeah, Triune. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Awesome. Thank you guys for joining us today. I'm really excited. This is going to be a lot of fun. And um, I guess we'll just kind of jump right into it just a little bit in case anybody doesn't already know. Um, we'll kind of go around. Um, it's clockwise for me. So we'll start with Gary, then we'll go to Ryan, and then Matt, introduce yourselves, give us a little background on who you are and what you do. So Gary, what, yeah, you, we'll start with you, okay. Gary. <laughs> uh, hi, I'm Gary Adcock. I'm a Chicago-based consultant in the film and television industry. I actually set, um, in addition to all of that, I set as the executive director for an educational not-for-profit that's geared to train film and television people in uh, from the manufacturing side, based here in Chicago. Filmscape is a is a, is a show much like Cinegear and everything, but we're kind of geared towards the, the the manufacturing side and education for the rental community and people who actually work in film and television for a living. I personally consult for a lot of the manufacturers. I write about lens technology, camera technology, and just the state of the industry. Cool. All right. Thank you. And Ryan? It's a little like Brady Bunch, you know? A little bit. I can't. I can't I'm like stuck on that a little bit because you're like pointing to people like, oh, over here. Is yeah. a, uh, I'm Ryan Conley. I'm the host and creator of Film Riot. I'm a writer, director, producer. Uh, I own Triune Films, uh, which under that we create Film Riot and Variant. Uh, both to uh, YouTube channels. Film Riot is a weekly how-to for filmmakers with, I guess, uh, the uh, 12 years, <laughs> I think now, 12 years running. Uh, with the goal behind Film Riot was always... You know, in the beginning, I talk about it a lot lately is uh, our open was you want to be a filmmaker. So do I. Let's figure it out. So the idea behind Film Riot was always not to be, you know, film instructors, but to especially in the beginning, realize where we at. I was five, six years out of film school, you know, still very green in a lot of ways. And, you know, just publicly let me succeed and fail and, and show people how hard this is, how long this path is and do short films publicly, you know, try to do them and fail miserably publicly, which has happened, uh, you know, all leading toward getting into features and hopefully being able to show behind the curtain in a way that hasn't really before uh, with that sort of process from start to finish. So it's really just been, you know, if from the beginning, just the idea of it, could we just you know, put people in the side seat with us who don't have access to these sorts of things and, and just let them come along from the ride, learn from our mistakes or, uh, you know, successes or failures. Um, for the past like three years, I've been pitching heavily, uh, you know, different feature projects and stuff. So that's been taking up more of my time since 2018, uh, than, than most other things. Uh, but that, that's about it. So I, I guess writer, director producer host i suppose <laughs> yeah a lot of a lot of hats stacked up there yeah got to right on and matt uh i'm not nearly as interesting uh but <laughs> I, I, with picture systems but i i do um in many ways, I guess you could say I'm kind of the ear to the ground for Puget Systems for the, the film industry. Um, so I'm not doing any of this directly, but I'm really excited about this one because I get to pick your guys' brains on a lot of things that I've been wondering about. Uh, and then I take that knowledge and I disseminate to, you know, the, the rest of the people at, at Puget Systems and, you know, other people on you know, different areas. So that's me. Awesome. 
Right on. Well, thank you, again, thank you all for joining us this morning. And it's a little, a little, it's a little early for me. The, uh, Gary and Ryan are Midwest, so they've been awake for a little bit longer. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I guess, I guess, just to start off, um, we had a, we had a few questions prepared, so we'll get we'll kind of jump into that. Um, I I'd like to start with this one question that Matt actually had come up with. Oh. Um, <laughs> with with we had a hack pandemic, in the system with the pandemic and everything. Um, Obviously, like it really kind of impacted filmmaking and in, in a big way, you know, people not being allowed to be like close to each other and things like that. Um, what what are some of the things that changed during the last I don't know year or two uh, that you weren't really expecting to see? Myself on camera. <laughs> a lot of people have no. said that. You mean I, I publicly mean, or just like if Zoom meetings? Yeah, I mean, I present publicly and I walk around rooms and talk to people and engage them when I'm trying to work. But to sit and stare at the box all the time, particularly since I don't have a prompter on mine and I'm not reading from up there, it, it, it that was a mindset that I had to relearn. Yeah. And that was one of the toughest things I had to do was actually stare into the box and talk to the eye. (laughs) It's interesting from my end, it didn't really change too much um, because of the way that I've always done business. You know, I started in Florida. So everybody I worked with was in California or New York. And now I'm in Dallas and everybody I work with is in California and New York, mostly California. And there's some local people. But for the most part, the stuff I do, I mean, you know, even uh, uh, on the other side of the world you know, the people that I'm working with on a normal basis. So I'm used to most of the stuff I'm doing through email, through Zoom. It's not a lot of, you know, uh, the type of stuff that Gary does. That's very random or or, uh, rare for me, rather. Um, But it was interesting how, you know, the pitching side, how much it boosted. Um, It, because I'm not in production, it didn't really hit you know, that hard in a bad way, it kind of helped a little bit, which is, you know, a weird thing to process because it's a horrible thing. But, you know, because everyone was home and I'm in Dallas, it no longer is trying to, you know, stack all these meetings for me to take a flight and then hit these meetings back to back and trying to get all these different studios and production companies to line up schedules for someone like me and who they're like, who who the hell is Ryan Conley? You know, now it's a Zoom call that could happen at any time whenever they're available and everyone was home. Home. So it went from, you know, it being very difficult to lock down these meetings that, you know, because we sent around a sample and there was about 30 different places that responded and, and wanted to set a meeting. But then it was months and months and months of trying to set meetings. Then all of a sudden everybody's home and it was meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting. Um, and even, you know, for, you know, the, the folks out in L.A., um, they were saying to me that, you know, it's so dumb that we haven't done it this way before, even doing meetings with people that are local, because it's like now I don't have to go on the highway, you know, and sit for an hour, you know, for a five mile drive. <laughs> you know? I don't have to go spend 45 minutes driving from exactly. Santa Monica to Burbank. Totally. It should take five or five, yep. it's like, you know, it's an hour and 45 minutes to go from Santa Monica to Burbank or Burbank to Santa yeah. Monica. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. even when I would be out there physically. Um, I would set all these meetings because, you know, I'm here for three days. So I'd set all these meetings and every time without fail, I'd have to cancel them because I always underestimate how long it's going to take me to get from point A to point B. So it ends up six meetings turn into like four at best. Uh, So everyone's just like, I don't know why this 30 minute meeting isn't happening over Zoom already. And I'm not spending three hours of my day just driving to a 30 minute meeting uh, and back. 
Um, so it seems like that's something that, I, I mean, hopefully sticks because it makes it a lot easier for, cause I have a lot of friends that are doing larger productions, but they don't want to live in LA. They live either at, in California, but very much outside of LA or in completely different States or, you know, one friend who lives in Canada uh, and he'll have to fly in and, you know, so, so it, it kind of shrinks that down a little bit. Um, which I think is great. And I hope that does stay the same. I think now that that bubble has been popped, I think, you know, it's going to stick around because, you know, even executives were saying how much they liked it and how dumb it was that it hadn't been done this way till now. So that's been like the biggest shift, you know, that I've personally seen. But again, that, you know, it's coming from somebody who's very much in the development phase right now, not in the production phase during all that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think it's interesting. Uh, you know, I've done more of this as an educator and teacher and that kind of thing. Um, and it's interesting how many of the pitches have gone. The other thing that I've been doing a lot is, is because everybody's meeting this way, I've done a lot more meetings in odd time zones to connect with people in Europe and Asia. Yeah. It's not nine to five anymore. I mean, yeah. it's not uncommon for me to be up at two or three o'clock in the morning to do a conference call in Europe or Asia. Mm -hmm. Right. That's actually pretty common or staying up late to you know, 10, 11 o'clock at night and doing them that way because of, of how it works in other people's schedule. That's that is one true. Of things that is really, really unifying for me because it allows me to connect with people all over the world. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it messes with my schedule, but that doesn't mean that, you know, it's not like we're chained down anymore or, yeah. or you know, it's not like we don't have allocated a lot of time. Most of us don't have a commute time anymore. So we right. gain an hour or two every day, just ourselves of time that we would normally use for other things. Yeah. 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 I've, I've had to kind of like rebalance. Cause it's like, you know, you have, we have a studio and just going to the studio, you have your home and you have your studio and that's mm -hmm. where you work and that's where you're home and you live life and you're with your family. And I've had to sort of, cause I mean, that's the world I came from. I started, my studio was my home. Mm -hmm. um, and we've only really had a studio for seven years now out of the 12 of just doing you know film riot and so it, that that was like a weird separation of wait when i'm home i'm not working what is that and so <laughs> to come back to that has been kind of a hard because i think we you know but i think most of us kind of obsess over what we do like this sort of field this mm -hmm. world is one you know drenched in passion so it's really hard to stop sometimes so that's been a hard thing to try to rebalance of like okay now it's it's time slots not places like having those separate places made it easy to like you know psychologically break from one thing to the and other remembering you know? to take a break between those time slots is really important oh yes. man it's that's, like that's the hardest minutes of jumping up and moving around a little bit and going right. to the bathroom getting something to drink has become fundamentally important where you didn't mm -hmm. think about it before because in the office you just got up and did it right. and now mm -hmm. you actually have to schedule it if you're if you're planning your meetings back to back you actually have to that's, think about that kind of stuff that's a Definitely. good point do, do you guys find that there is a sort of um, pressure to be available at all times? Like you were saying, Gary, that um, it provides the opportunity to connect with people in different countries, different time zones. But do you feel do you feel pressured to take those those early morning slots or late night I, slots? I don't, do and I work to? for myself and can pick my own schedule. I, okay. I would I would be bothered by it if I was working a nine to five job and mm -hmm. my employer insisted on that in addition to my normal day okay. because. Because my time is my own and, you know, I, I, I run multiple businesses You know, I've got my own private corporation plus the not-for-profit and then I help other people do things for, you know, I do charity work and all of that. I think, I think I plan my day out a little, little better. I don't mind getting up in the middle and doing it if it means I can get a hold of somebody differently than I would normally do it. Um, I don't feel pressured to do it. 
but then I'm a production guy. My job is all over the place anyways. It's, I, you know, okay. I'm one of those people who got, who, if I was still in IATSE, I'd been out stomping on the ground because, you know, as a DIT, which is what I did on set, I was always the first guy on the set and the last to leave after everyone else. It wasn't uncommon for me to turn off the lights and shut down the stage by myself because wow. I didn't want, you know, you know, an electrician or somebody to be hanging into the overtime if you didn't have to or if he had to be there you know, three hours before me the next day to set up. You think about that kind of stuff. And production has always been a rather erratic schedule to begin with. Um, yeah. It's one of the things that the union went on strike for was to sure. kind of, you know, protect people's lives and livelihoods and, and being able to, you know, get a, a normal night's sleep when necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, on all of this. So we're talking about production level. What about like in, in post, like being able to do all of these meetings and everything on Zoom? Do you feel that that's improving kind of the workflow between like different departments? You know, it, I think it's know, an acceleration color, of what's been going on. I think it's an acceleration of what's been going on with, you know, Frame.io's revolution and what those kinds of tools have been doing. I mean, yeah. because that started allowing a much more intimate collaboration in post. Um, you know, even when you weren't there, you could actually leave a note at a time specific point in time. And, and that's been so fundamental that, you know, even companies like Dropbox have stolen it and, and that. And it's and it's a big and it's a fundamental way we have to work. We have to communicate. Um, too many times people assume that communication need to be in person. Now, that being said, having gone this incredible length of time being a solo flight. Going into meetings physical with people is exhilarating again. I, I mean, it's it's it was really fun. I flew down to Dallas to do something at, at Texas Stadium and and interconnected with the person I was meeting there because of something on their desk that would have never shown shown in a Zoom in a Zoom call. So it's like there's a difference that you can gain knowledge of people that's not you know the blank background that I have you know hanging behind me. Mine's a canvas drop, by the way. It's not it's not artificial. It's a real background. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, like like Gary said, like Frame.io has already been a huge thing. And I have a couple of friends in the post world that, you know, they hinged on that heavily. That's how they would send to their producer or the director. It wouldn't always be sitting specifically in the room. And from my world, that's been how I've always done it. You know, my composer moved to L.A. only maybe four or five years ago. And he's still in another state, but he used to be in England. So, you know, that was, you know, that was that. You know, my colorist is in another state, you know. Everyone I work with in post, uh, my BFX artist currently lives in uh, England, you know, um, others are in L.A. So everybody that I've always worked with are in completely different places than I, I am. So I've never really been able to sit down and do it. And the only times that I have been is something like my short film Ballistic when we had a decent budget to where we could budget that out. And I flew out to, you know, my editor to actually sit with him and, and do that. Cause if you can be there live, especially when you're doing something like, you know, the color or the edit or the sound being able to, to hit those nuances, similar to what, you know, Gary said about seeing something on someone's desk, it's, you know, those little, you know, things that you can't quite get in the moment. Otherwise he, he doesn't edit. And, oh, he doesn't like it. He goes back. I'm like, Whoa, Whoa, wait, wait, go back to what you were doing. Now, if he's, putting together an edit and sends it to me on frame. I, I'm never seeing that moment of that, you know, that little spark of an idea that he abandoned that I'm like, wait, wait, no, no, I see where you're going. And we found really great things that way. So it's two heads being better than one instead of me noting a final thing that he's trying to figure out what my thought process and intention is. We're in the room and we're melding as one. So I don't, you know, unless you do a live thing, which I have done and you can do, but even that is still, 
too disconnected in some ways. Um, but because of the delays. I, I up, yes, the delays. And, 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 and this is something to bring up on that. It's a lot of this is the, it's the interconnectivity. We feel disconnected from it because of the delay in the signal. I mean, if you're waiting five or six seconds for a change to happen and it, and it takes, you know, another delay to get in there, it's yeah. those kinds of delays that you don't have, you know, that the person on the sending side is antsy about and the person on the receiving side is frustrated by. Yeah. And that's one of the things that's been really interesting for me is start working with higher levels of technology to solve some of those delays. Um, and that cool. And, and, and Ryan's right. I mean, there's a lot of disconnect and there's so much that you can do in a community where you're interconnecting with the people you work with. And, and that's and that's been a function of the film and television lifestyle for many years. I mean, we build families in this stuff. We all have this yeah. kind of thought process of, of doing it that way. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I mean, I guess it just depends on what portion, you know, of the pipeline I'm in. Like if it's in VFX, you know, I'm not going to sit over my VFX artist while he wrote us for five hours. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so that's a different world. Um, my composer, we get together, we come up with, and then I want him to go and I want him to sink into the themes and I want him to have freedom and not feel like I'm over his shoulder, you know? So, so I'll, I'll swoop in for stuff and then swoop back out. So that, that works really well with a, a remote workflow. Uh, uh, but again, when it comes to things like sound or edit, it is great to be, you know, in the room. But uh, yeah. I've I've done it more not in the room than actually in the room, yeah. and both have, you know, yielded results. I was I was really happy with, and and like Gary said, we keep going to a better and better and better place. Uh, a buddy of mine did the the uh, Frame.io cloud thing for his film Songbird, and and he you know he really liked that immediacy of people aren't in the room, but he's getting text notes because they're watching things happen well, you know, and, as they happen. I think it's interesting that people haven't explored. There's other you know solutions. Solutions that offer that, Queen IO, you know, the the the, the company from Gunlick Groen, who's been who's Microsoft system based on that, and how they're doing it. They use Azure for their cloud, actually. But he's been doing that actually longer than Frame IO was doing camera, oh, wow. um, and and doing it, you know, in association with the European Film Commissions and the Norwegian government. But he's been doing a lot in China that way, where they've actually been shooting in China and editing in Europe, or shooting in Europe and editing in real time in China in the same way awesome. um and and so so there's there's other solutions out there they're not you know frame io we talk about because we like it and everything else but it's not the only solution out there no, and no. particularly if you're outside the united states always look for an alternative solution in your country because there's a lot out there there's at least four or five cloud solutions that i know of that offer those that kind of tech right now there are some negatives that i have heard from a lot of friends yeah. that are uh, yeah. post, whereas some of these uh, solutions, while awesome for someone like me, you know, I'm the director and I want to sit over the shoulder and be able to collaborate. Some of them have told me that it's been not so awesome to have certain producers being able oh. to just pop into a live stream at any given moment and yell at them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. So it's like, okay, I can see how that, you know, it is, you know, reducing that ability to have the separation you need for, for certain things to where, you know, you want to be able to push maybe this sort of person. Just give give me a minute to do this instead of them being over here. Where are you? Why are you not editing? I'm like, I'm getting coffee. <laughs> you know I mean? yeah. uh, so there are those things, too, that, that come into play that I think will be interesting to navigate also. Well, 
one of the things in production too is i mean you know you've got the camera feed but a lot of instances you've got a witness cam too so you're not just sending a single uplink you're not just sending just the camera view you're also sending a witness view so you can see what's going on in set how it's going to do or you've got the you know the view around kind of information so there's a lot of things that go on that require that so so if you start talking about witness cameras and a camera view you're talking about two really high resolution high quality (laughs) bandwidth signals that you have to send out together and you know and then you start talking about well what kind of connectivity do i have on set what can i use where's my bonding i mean one of the things i always talk about when i talk about production is you know do you know where your wireless is you know if you're using wireless do you are you sure you're comfortable that way we kind of i was kind of joking with houston when we came on it's like you know i do these things i plug into an ethernet jack on my laptop because gee wi-fi is just sucks and and, and, and it's like i laugh about those kind of things but i'm amazed the number of people that don't think about things like rebooting the router before they go on and do this kind of stuff you know pull the cable box plug it back in let it reboot it'll give you a cleaner signal it redefines its access to the network and it'll solve your problems but people don't think about the other things that get involved you know how you know the microphones have to be configured if you've got everything on your production is wireless i'm telling you that something is stepping on something else <laughs> yeah period yeah <laughs> well just think about like back in the day just like the old cordless phones you could pick up like your neighbor's phone calls just because <laughs> oh my you god were, yes or, you know, or microwaves microwaves you, used to shut off cordless yeah. phones instantly sure. you know because so it was not? right in the middle of the bandwidth that they allocated for you know that specific frequency dead center in the middle of it's where microwaves fall yeah. we like, had a cordless phone that would pick up our neighbor's baby monitor yep <laughs> And we'd hear into their room like, oh, this feels wrong. <laughs> but what are they saying? <laughs> you know, with, with yeah, I know. Yeah. I, I'm going to go back to the remote stuff because the sure. one thing I'd, I'd love to hear from, I, I don't know if you guys could give this insight, but I, I'd love to hear a perspective of that question from a color, someone who's like pure color, because that seems like the one workflow that would be tough oh. to do remote. Because like sound, I, VFX, you're sending them something, but color, like everyone's monitors are different. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I, I, I have done it. Um, and from an indie perspective, it's tough because you don't have the money to like the, the best way. One of my friends, the way they do it is they calibrate a monitor and they send it to the client. And so that client's on the monitor. Oh, the that monitor. They do. Okay. Um, another one will use an Sorry, iPad. Guys. iPads. <laughs> this is iPad. a color That's calibrated, color calibrated yeah. accurate display. Uh-huh. It's the only way to do it. Yeah, and that's another friend. He they just do it off of iPads, and it's like, do you have an iPad? No, they send them their iPad, and they just do it off of that. Yeah, um, that's that's one then, of the things that's really difficult, and you can't do it. And, and this is my one bitch about Android devices: sure. is that there's no calibration or no controls for the displays across all devices that's universal. So you so if you build a workflow, you have to build it to a very specific device in any environment to do wireless stuff like that. iPad just seem to be the easy one because they're pretty nebulous and Apple really controls both the software and the color space on them very accurately. probably more so than any other device I can think of. The iPad, the iPad Pro in particular, the color balance and color controls on it are sophisticated enough to, to actually, you know, do HDL, HD, HLG proofing on and, wow. and view Dolby content. I mean, now that the, uh, the Apple phone is producing Dolby content, Dolby content accurately reads on those devices. So if you're doing an HDR display and you deliver it in the very specific 
4.20 Dolby codec that you can run in here, you can actually see incredibly accurately what's going on. And hmm. and you're and you're building a lot like you would do for anything else. You're building a lookup profile that's specific for that device so that that device does exactly what you want it to do. That's the way you have to do any of those things. And and Apple gives us one access there, but that's not the only solution. But the reality of it is it's probably one of the easiest solutions because of the number of devices that are available. So. Yeah, well, and you can't get everyone on your production team or your director or whatever to go out and get a, you know, a, a Flanders scientific or yeah. whatever, and like do color calibration and everything. Because I mean, an iPad's not going to be perfect, you know, even if they control it, because I mean, oh, no. the lighting in your house and everything. But it's going to mm-hmm. be better than, you know, whatever random thing they decide to watch it on, whatever monitor. Because man, especially like monitors these days, it seems like they all come by default like oversaturated, over vibrant. Over sharpened. <laughs> yeah, just all these Higher things that you can immediately go in and turn off. Just over. It's even, over yeah, it's yeah. even worse on like TVs because like they have all that like the smooth stuff turned oh. on or I don't know yeah. all that junk that like I feel almost a little bad whenever I'm like you know on vacation at like an Airbnb or something like okay I'm gonna go into your TV I'm turning all this junk off. Like, <laughs> That's like I know it's gonna look different to you. At a hotel. Yeah, the next person will love yeah. you for it. That's just yeah. uh-huh. the next person will love you for it. They or they'll look and they're like, why are the colors so muted? Oh. Yeah. But okay. <laughs> Off topic. There. We'll get but back that's in. the reality of it though. And 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 that's the thing is, is that because of the, the rules of standardization in our industry, there aren't any standards. We we've got an output standard, but we don't have a and we have a display standard, but nobody meets it, you know. And and how many HDR monitors don't really show a full 10-bit signal. How many of them, you know, HDR monitor is supposed to be a minimum of 1,000 nits. How many of them are? You know, there's a whole bunch of monitors that claim to be HDR that are 600 nits. Well, that's yeah. only 50% brighter than a normal television set. That's not HDR. Huh. And, and, and you don't think about those kinds of things in the colorist aspect is trying to figure out how do I output to multiple different displays. That's why I say, I, you know, I, I if when I had clients and we were doing remote pro- proofing, I just bought the client an iPad and send it to them. <laughs> 700 bucks for a, for a, you know, a Wi-Fi only iPad meant that I gave them a device that was done and it saved me $700 with a hair. Oh, sure. Oh, Not enough, it? I guess. Uh, <laughs> the iPad didn't come soon enough, I think. Yeah. But that's the thing. is, you, you, you have to think about that. Sometimes you have to give away something to be able to, to prove to the client it does what it does. Yeah. But, but that's... But that's technology. To, you know, that's that's the technology in the end game. That's not what we're talking about here because we need to talk about development of build and all that kind of stuff. Sure, sure. Yeah. Know? And actually, can I kind of flip the question we asked before on, mm-hmm. on its head? So we were talking about like what things changed. And like, I think we've talked mostly about like the things that worked. Yes. Do you guys think, has there been anything that like just flat out hasn't worked, uh, especially since pandemic, but really like over the last, I don't know, five years? Anything that's like failed, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. So if you can't, you know, whatever. But three you know, anything TV. that's like failed as far as like workflows. Oh, what was that, Houston? I said three D TV, or, or, and you said workflow. Three D TV. <laughs> no, I, mean, I like three D. I, I made I made a lot of money in three D. Was great. Two cameras, twice as much hassle, twice as much post. It was, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> well, was it? And Sony? it was not supposed to be a line. It's supposed the, to be offset to each other. <laughs> Would yeah, you someone say just that? released a camera for, for yeah. that uh, again, like the with the two lenses. Well, well see, and, and well, you're talking about the Canon lens for Canon, the R5 that, that, that comes. It's a very specific. It's an eight millimeter lens, dual thing that sets in the front, and it's designed for that immersive VR experience. Yeah. Um, 
And think about that one a little differently than you thought about stereoscopic, because that kind of device is designed for the immersive world, for training, for knowledge base. I mean, think about uh, wearing one of those and be working on, you know, showing somebody how to uh, sew up a wound if you're medical or how to fix an engine if you're a mechanic. I mean, there's applications for that in the VR space that are really important for educational purposes and training purposes, not necessarily artistic. And remember that a good chunk of what we do is never ever considered artistic. It's considered, you know, menial things in film and television. So I, I looked at that one and kind of went, hey, okay, I get it. But, but then I had to, and it, to me, that was very much like Google Glasses. Um, Google Glass was one of those things that's like, well, that's a great idea, but they're trying to make it something it's not. It needs to be there. It needs to be, you know, body cams for cops, clip on their glasses. It needs to be, you know, that immersive thing so a medical technician can get immediate response from the hospital and see in real time what's going on. I mean, those kind of applications for Google Glass and emergencies to be able to um, do a matrix-like sharing of knowledge was a really interesting aspect of those. And much what a lot of companies are still working at with AR. Um, you know, that's kind of fascinating to me is, and, and having done a lot of work in AR, thinking about how they did things like being able to map blood vessels by colored light, which, you know, they caused And now, you know, you can go in some places in the country that, that have problems with drug addiction and they'll have blue lights or red lights up so you can't see your veins. And, and those are kind of things that are really interesting on how they took technology for they were developing for medical and emergency uses and then applied the reverse out to be able to help people in other places. I don't know. There's there's lots of kind of the technology that doesn't ever seem mainstream that still has functionality in a world that we may not be in. Mm. Yeah, and I still feel like extension, you know, when you talk about like Google Glass and stuff, like I'm still not sure about VR for passive entertainment, I guess is the way to say, you know, like, you know, watching something. I still think VR has a future in active things where you're participating, but I'm still not sold. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm still not sold on, you know, VR movies. I, I know a lot of people have make a lot of a lot of attempts, but I'm I'm still not sure about that. So I, I'm curious to see if you guys have any thoughts on, on, on that side of things. One of the last projects I worked on before COVID in, in February of last year um, was real interesting because it was a training program for the Chicago Police Department that I got brought in as a data handler <laughs> on um, to train police how to deal with um uh, people dealing with suicide. And it was a project that I was very much involved in. My brother died of suicide more than a decade ago. And it was one of those things that I was very much passionate about and how they were doing it. But it was like, the, the fascinating thing to me is, is, you know, you did this camera view from all the different perspectives of all the individuals in there. And the actor had to do the same level of performance eight times. Wow. And I don't know about you, but th the fact that this guy was able to pretty much nail his lines, his sequence, his body movement, his positioning in this enclosed environment for eight separate performances for every person's perspective in the room was really fascinating to me and, and, and showed a an incredible quality of actor, but also somebody who really understood what the, the task was. Um, I've never I've yet to see the finished product, though. Because um, I know it took them a long time to work it out because of COVID. But that I thought was a real interesting application for VR is, you know, what happens from the different perspectives? How do you see what goes on when you're trying to help somebody who's in mental and physical trouble? So. Yeah, I mean, I mean, from the the passive, you know, the just film entertainment viewpoint, I'm I'm kind of on your side of the fence on that. I don't, 
I don't know that that would work for me. I mean, part of the the excitement of sitting in a theater <clears throat> is you're sitting in a theater around people, you know, and, and their reactions. And then I put a thing on and that's gone. You know, that's mm -hmm. taken away from me now. So, uh, you know, then you're just watching stuff at home, you know, which is fine and great. And I do a lot more than I go to the theater, obviously. But, um, you know, I think that communal aspect uh, that, you know, will keep that from ever taking hold uh, in a larger way than that aspect of it, but I could be wrong. Um, I think the next generation is going to decide on that. Like, what did they gravitate toward, click on to, just like everything. Um, but I just, I don't know that that would, I think it's, you know, gimmicky, not in the, you know, derogatory, you know, way of saying gimmick, but as in it's a theme park ride, which is really cool. So are there blockbuster films that, you know, do that? for very specific reasons. And it's a specific gimmicky thing, like found footage movies, you know, that's not every movie, but some movies it works with and some people like them. And, you know, so they, that could be really cool. You know, that immersive, Hey, this story actually makes a lot of sense for this, but then you'd be, you know, that's home entertainment. Um, obviously I don't, I don't think you would get theaters to come up with VR rooms anytime <laughs> soon, but Hey, you know, maybe a world, not where you put on goggles, but maybe a world where the I, screens surround you, you know, I don't, you I don't know do about that, Ryan. Thing. Cause I mean, I mean, there's something going around now. There's uh, this thing called the immersive Van Gogh, which is a multi-projector, uh, yeah. you know, environmental thing of that. And then, and then there's another company that actually makes pop-up booths that have <clears throat> 3d environmental stuff like that. So a lot of yeah. AR VR combined, I think that's, that's, that may be more immersive in the future, particularly because of COVID, because it's a smaller group than we, we thought was. I yeah, mean, no, I agree with that. There's even a, a VR experience here, but that's sort of the gimmick that I mean. Like there's right. these specific things that totally work from that and will exist. And and if there's a thing where without goggles, you know, maybe specific, there's one theater that has like screens that wrap around you and, and you shoot it in that VR way, but it's projected onto all these screens. That's really oh, Marco experience. It's like, you know, who, who knows? Uh, Barco, yeah. Barco did that what five years ago, and did that multi-panel environmental, you know, thing that that they did that has been used that actually, you know, was a precursor to virtual production. But Barco yeah. had been working on that technology for a while and had uh, a thing that was literally floor, ceiling, and and three walls that you step into and it becomes the environment. That, That's awesome. That was, it was a precursor of all of that. Yeah. This is really interesting. I mean, you talk about, and when we talk about, you know, amusement park rides and all of that, people need to understand that these are huge productions and use masters of visual effects. I mean, you know, um, um, Sam Nicholson at Stargate's done them. Doug Trumbull did a half a dozen rides um, in his lifetime um, and it's still consulting in that business. I mean, those are huge money makers for parks. But I think it's sure. the, the AR, VR world, I think, look at, you know, what the new Star Wars is, where they've got, you know, the cars are smaller, your groups of six or eight people, 10, you know, it's not these, you don't have 50 people in, a, in, in, you know, in an event anymore, you've got 15 or 20 in small events moving through the projects um, inside, you know, these amusement parks. Uh, I think, I, I think there'll be a place for it. I really see it more for educational and, and elementary elemental stuff. I mean, I was working on heads up displays and immersive 360 environments for the military, uh, you know, for pilots and, and UAV training and that kind of stuff two decades ago. 
that's nothing new in any of that. You know, we were doing those yeah. with with um, first generation, you know, Thompson Vipers shooting nap of the earth land mapping stuff with, you know, six of them hung underneath the helicopter. That kind of shit. Like that was stuff that nobody ever thought of then that we do now with Reds. And, you know, you look at somebody like what Phil Holland does with his panoramic views um, using, you know, multiple Reds and stitching together these massive images that they didn't play back in 4K on, on lots of devices for the panel manufacturers are pretty stunning. Sure. You know? Yeah. Well, and you know, like you were saying before, Gary, a lot of the work that you guys are doing is not actually in entertainment. There's a lot of the education, the corporate stuff, you know, all, all that kind of jazz. And I do actually think, though, that, yeah, VR will probably be very useful in those areas. I mean, education, yeah. especially, especially if more and more people are doing things from home or whatever, like you can get so much more, you know, immersed into whatever, especially that kids are learning about, like, yeah, you can't take a trip to Rome. Like you just can't do that, but Hey, you can go and you can see the Sistine Chapel or whatever. Drones made that possible. I mean, that's yeah. one of the things about drones. I, I hate drones, but some of the shots they get of, you know, disaster footage or, you know, flying into a volcano to see, you know, lava splashing up or just that kind of stuff I find incredible because they, they changed our human perspective on it as much as that stupid wire cam does in football that mimics, you know, what the games do. Um, I, it's a great shot and I love it. But I think it's overused because it makes people want to think that they need to go back to Madden 2K or whatever and, and play a game <laughs> rather than watching something in the real world. Yeah. Um, you know, there's so much of this that that is constantly evolving, though. I mean, you know, True. two years ago, we would have never had a discussion about virtual production. Now it's on everybody's lip. And I mean, even today in The Hollywood Reporter, we were commented out earlier, I, the UK has announced that virtual production is now part of all curriculum in the UK for film and television production. And we're talking about something that two years nobody had ever even heard of before. <laughs> and yeah. and fundamentally change the way we do lots of stuff in television. <laughs> well, how so expanding on the virtual production stuff? Like, do you think that someone who is in you know film industry today, uh, how important do you think it is that they you know take some free classes on Unreal or you know on and just kind of learn the tools, just get a, a basic familiarity? Do you think that's like important to do now? Or, hey, don't worry I about think it. You should have already done you it. need to. I, I mean, yeah. I, I kind of joked. I, I run on all these people, and it's like I, I was on a, a, a documentary production that used a virtual set. Uh, we think it's one of the, the first documentary that's ever been shot in North America and maybe the world um, using virtual production technology. And one of the actors was a six-year-old kid. And he didn't care anything about the camera, but when he saw computers and, and Unreal, he like gravitated to the world builder and spent half an hour picking the guy's brain. Cool. Because the kid wow. understood enough about how the game engine worked to ask questions that were completely relevant to what we were doing. And I'm like, holy Lord, that boy is smart. And 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 I think that the kids that are coming now are going to have a better understanding of it. It's harder for the old guys because they don't understand simple things like IP addressing and tri-level sync and, you know, all those things that allow 
all of these devices to be in the same time base. I mean, people forget the camera's at 2398, the computer's spitting out at 30p, and the wall is working at 59, you know, at 60 hertz, 94 hertz. And it's like, all of those need to do that. And if you're talking PAL, it even gets more complicated because the computer still spits out 30p, but your camera's shooting 25 and your wall's working at 50. And it's like, all things are, you know, you don't think about how sync is a big deal, but it is. And, 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 you know, just being able to lock a signal together. So all of the devices understand what one is, you know, that's a big deal. And virtual production, though, it doesn't have to be LED walls. Like, I know that that's, you know, a huge thing, in, yeah. especially the upper ends. But, like, I know there's a lot of people that are using Unreal for, like, their green screen stuff. Right. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, for or, sure. or virtual sets. Like, it can be completely virtual. So, and, like, that is the area where I think people are really, um, well, no, there's a lot of experimenting going on everywhere. Yeah. But that's the area where I feel like people are just, like, a single guy at home. It's like, hey, yeah, I'm going to make myself like a news broadcaster now. And they, well, they and, build a virtual and, set. And, and, and I mean, you know, you, that, that's going on right now. I mean, a perfect example yeah. of this is you watch the Rachel Maddow show or or some of the Fox shows. You know, they're up against the 105-inch TV, and that's their background. Um, I, I built three miniature Unreal test engine sets using, you know, 75 and, or 105-inch television sets and model building. You know, to be able to do that kind of stuff, because it because then you're not have then you don't have to have much to you just you know dismay. You don't have to have you know a computer for every twelve feet of wall um, to be able to sync them together, and then another computer to sync them all together, and another computer to run the display, and another computer to handle all the, run the preforce server. And I mean, one of the things that people don't understand about how virtual production is is that you basically have to have a couple of IT guys just to be able to handle the hardware needs of of a production. I mean, the company that I work with, Miller creative here in chicago we work out of resolution digital i mean all their systems are built by by puget and it's and it's interesting because we now run three they run three main computers just to run the graphics and then run another machine just to keep the three together in sync mm. so you, you don't think about that level and each one's got you know three nvidia cards with sli connectivity and blah blah, blah. you know and it's the, the power of those kind of tools to push the wall the way you needed to yeah. when you start getting into mandalorian kind of stuff i mean you're talking about server farms to be able to make some of this stuff work to be able to push the data as fast as as it's necessary for some of the technology that's out there yeah well i was gonna say ryan right so gary's got kind of like the high-end professional style i was curious ryan have you have you gotten into into virtual production at all have you played with it in yeah your thing and i don't how do you how do you apply or how does that go for more of your side of things yeah we've been toying around with it uh quite a bit um at different levels and 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 i don't you know i think from the highest end hollywood level down to the indie is kind of the same answer it depends like do you need to do a class on it well what kind of films are you making what kind of filmmaker are you is robert eggers gonna jump into unreal no he's not you know what i mean he makes physical films with physical people in physical locations for me for a filmmaker like me like hell yeah like i agree with gary like why have you not already like you need to know these things you know especially from the indie world like certainly in the hollywood like one of the things gary mentioned it earlier one of the things that like uh excites me most is the idea of 
reshoots, you know, being able to, well, we can't, I don't have the money to go back to that location. Well, guess what? Bring it up on, you know, the virtual production stage and let's oh. get the stuff we need. And I think well, that yeah. Yeah, we did that before exciting. we went on the air. So just everybody understands this is that, Oh, I thought that was during, <laughs> there was a production in Chicago that was closing down and, and they shot everything and they needed to, because of timing on the stages, they needed to tear down their production sets. And traditionally when you get done with a production the sets, stay up for a month or two or three afterwards yeah. in case there's reshoots mm -hmm. so what they did in is we went in and mapped the set all these sets with the lighting as defined as the show you know daytime set and nighttime set and shot the four sets and then they had them to go back and do inserts and and drop-ins and and those kind of things for production and it saved an immense amount of money because it allowed them to spend a couple of days of photography three days of photography to record all the sets and then not pay four months of you know seventy thousand square feet of production yeah. stage <laughs> yeah and and yeah. in the indie world that just means that reshoots are possible for the first time you know when you're talking right. about the sub 10 million dollar you know going back to that place or having that set's gone there is no option of keeping it around so you know yeah. oh, we only could get this and that we could you know tie these together you know that becomes a thing now um but you know it's also just from the indie like when i was 15 years old crazy passionate using what whatever software that wasn't made for the thing because there wasn't anything available to people like me at the time to try to make a car explode or whatever or create something. Nobody wanted to make anything with me. So how do I make something? You know, Unreal unlocks all of that for these kids uh and it's all free to start with they just toy around with whatever and you can start practicing you know your composition your scene construction your pacing your lighting you you know things that you could never do before so i mean that aspect alone is exciting of the education that it can bring to the you know the younger kids who are passionate about filmmaking but then you know when you get into actual indie filmmaking there's a project right now that we're discussing that it's like hey this could be a feature that I could do while I'm out here pitching these other things. Here's something I could do on my own. Um, and my brain goes to, you know, bigger films. That's the type of film I like to make sci-fi action, you know, horror, you know, things like that. So it's real hard to be able to do that at a budget at a sub five budget, sub two budget. Um, and, you know, we have an idea right now that we're toying around with. And, and the only reason we're even thinking about it is because of that world and what that could bring to the project. Where it's like, well, okay, all we would need to build is this and this. And then we get these things. And then the rest we could do, you know, this way. So we're testing those things out. So it, it opens up, you know, blockbuster level filmmaking for indie filmmakers in a way that I haven't seen before uh, and is really, really exciting. Even just from the... Uh, preparation standpoint or pitching even if you don't have you know your project landed i've used it for some pitching where i had a specific like hey man like this moment is like a part this is such an ingrained like you need to see this moment to understand what i'm pitching you i was able to create it um or if we're doing you know even down to film riot um you know like we we don't you know we have our short films that we do where it's a full-blown thing then we have more like sketches we call them or scenes where we just do a thing and then we're teaching around it and and we're wanting to do this mildly bigger thing and we don't you know it's going to be a crew of four or five you know so i stem from the hundred man crew to the two man crew you know and everything in between so with five people all this stuff that we need to get done we're gonna to have to shoot it in a day so i can go in and literally make the entire thing you know hitchcock style from you know his yeah. films where he would make the whole film on paper before he made it but now in a way that 
you know, and then uh, with animatics that was only available to studios, you know, just a few years ago. So just all those aspects from, you know, from ed- the education when you're young to the pitching to the actual development to production, like all that stuff is just, it's really crazy yeah. what it brings. So I think definitely and, for and, young and, filmmakers, and you if you're not in it, kind of, what are you, you doing? You kind of skipped over a little bit. Unreal is free. Yes. yes, that's it's the completely great free and quick mega scans. It doesn't matter. It's free. Download it. Start learning. You know, yeah. learn, yeah. How, to, learn only... how to connect things to it. Learn how to build things in it. Learn how to like things yeah. in it. Learn how to do things. Yeah. Um, one of the, you know, and that's one of the things that, you know, it's a free tool that they give away for this technology. And I think it's fascinating. And, and there's a whole lot of the marketplace is free, yeah. Um, you know. Yeah. I think it's interesting because it allows you to work with developer tools and all that. One of the things I've been working on in, in virtual production um, takes lens data, you know, port on the side of the lens gives me fizz information, focus, iris, zoom, plus it also gives me shading and all kinds of other stuff, focal length and all of that. Being able to marry that kind of live information directly into Unreal, where you have a, a, an object that in the real world is controlling the virtual world whether it's lighting or focus or anything else. That's where the power starts getting in this because you start have that capability of marrying what the natural, what you're focusing on and the artifice and have them marry together. And, and you know, this brings up whole new levels of technology for everybody. It's, it's art, it's, you know, 3D design, it's modeling, it's all of the things that you have to do to build cars and houses and homes and cities. Um, you know, it's all the same tech. You know, lighting is the same if you're doing an, an architectural design as if you're doing studio design in those kinds of engines and and what's any what's even more interesting is what you know nvidia seems to be doing with omniverse which is taking their you know architectural building and drafting tools you know autocad and those kind of things and building environments that can actually pass into unreal and pass into the game engines to do that that's fascinating too because you start realizing that we're getting you know 100 percent accurate accurate models for an automobile is now being used as the the model for a production shot of a car driving by in the distance um those are, and people don't realize that 90 percent of car ads are not real yeah there's a device called a blackbird that's just cameras and wheels that they change and they put the wheels from the car and adjust the wheelbase to match and then the camera shoots all the plates and then they drop the car on top of this vehicle later it's um, really neat that, uh, i've seen the the thing that they use to just paint over like any car it's, it's really called cool. a blackbird yeah it's called yeah. A blackbird. yeah and the guy <laughs> who helped develop it is actually now the head of virtual production at dimension, dimension films Wow. So it's like people who build these tools keep moving farther and farther and farther up in the industry. But Unreal has changed everything in such a short period of time. I wonder if the effect had been the same if we hadn't had, if we had the Mandalorian and didn't have a pandemic. Mm. Yeah. Where yeah. everybody could yeah. like dive into it. And, and, and it fundamentally- I don't think so. I think I think I think things would have continued the way that they had been. It would have been a lot That's slower like saying, of an adoption. Uh, see, I disagree with you, Houston. I, I, I disagree with that because I look back to Fukushima, you know, which was 11, 10 years ago in March. Mm-hmm. Um, the the you know the react the earthquake happened and wiped out the reactor at Fukushima. But that earthquake also wiped out tape production in Japan and most of yeah. China, you know, and it fundamentally drove us to digital overnight. 
That's what I mean. Is without it, I think things would have continued. Without such a dramatic yeah. uh, event, things would have continued along uh, at the pace that they were going. It would have been kind of fun and cool because, oh, hey, Disney did it, but we don't have ten million dollars per episode to make this sort right. of thing. And but like guys like Matt Workman and stuff, we're doing this sort of work kind of behind the scenes, and we're yeah. it was very indie, very like DIY in my garage sort of stuff. And if not for everybody having to be separated, and it it just really exploded it now they there was a what is the the cliche is um necessity is the mother of invention right we needed a solution to keep people separate and so yeah. this was it and it blew up and became big mainstream i think it just accelerated the time frame i mean uh, I yeah. this is where we were headed regardless i just think it made it faster out of like you said necessity because i was already hearing the whispers of it yeah um and a lot of my friends in the industry from mandalorian it was blowing their minds what was possible already um i think it was just you know the same thing as the zoom calls of just like why didn't we do this already <laughs> You know, yeah. it was gonna happen honestly, eventually. You know, I, I feel like it's there's just there's um people just like they they have that comfort of well this is how we've always done it and, and oh, it yeah, takes it sure. takes something either you have to take a risk and, yeah no one, matter what one person to just be like you know what I'm I'm big enough in this space that I'm just gonna do whatever I want to make it big or the industry has to shift because what else are we going to do? Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about Mandalorian and, and, and everybody talks about how it was groundbreaking and all this kind of stuff, but fundamentally forget that it was groundbreaking because it was the first star Wars series that was live action. Right. And, and, and people would have watched that no matter what, you know? So, mm-hmm. so there's some of the, you know, it's like the Marvel series that run, you know, and Disney plus is, yeah, I give Disney plus a lot of credit for having, you know, a series of Marvel and a series of star Wars things and actually understanding that, that this is what people wanted to watch and writing content that people wanted to see. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, 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 the Mandalorian wouldn't be in as good if you didn't have the baby, you know, as inquisitive as it was, it, you know, it wasn't baby Yoda, it was Grogu. And, right. but, but then you look at Falcon and the snowman and Loki and WandaVision and how those shows have fundamentally re-energized um, the Marvel universe. Mm-hmm. And and you look at, you know, what's coming for Star Wars with Kenobi and some of the other series that are coming, that's going to be really interesting. And you look at what, what Disney has on there as extras already, you know, fly-throughs of the world. There's there's one on there that's just the sounds of, of, of Star Wars, which is fascinating if you go put it on. <laughs> but there's also a whole section of, of, of Disney Plus that has nothing but screensavers. So there's, you oh, know, yeah. frozen screensavers all these other kind of things that are six and seven minute little looping things of of just to put on and and i wish i could access them through my you know my interface to be able to have them loop without putting them on but there's all kinds of the stuff in there and that's that kind of content that has helped expand our uh, how we look at content in the future mm-hmm. yeah i definitely think that there, there's that's a a really good point as far as the content will drive it as well like if mandalorian was trash i don't think it would have been received like it was you know well and you brought it back episodics come thing. on we, 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 we got into the netflix world yeah. of downloading everything all at once and watching it and they brought back you have to go back and watch it on th- Wednesday well or hbo or never left that <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, like yeah, Game of Thrones, you know, Netflix. biggest series, you know, that so that never went away. But Netflix was really pounding on that door. So definitely glad that Mandalorian and stuff came back. It was like, eh, 
let's give them a week because I, like I, I prefer that. Like, I'm like, I can't binge everything. And now everybody knows it and spoilers are everywhere. Well, but how yeah, many times being how as many good time, as it was, I definitely helped push it along as well. And how many times when you watched the show, did you did you go back and watch the previous episode with the one you read, the new one, just so you make sure you had all the points in the data line, right? Yep. <laughs> right, yep. right. <clears throat> Yeah, I miss those recaps. I love those last time ons. It's just so Mm -hmm. nostalgic to me, you know. So I love when those are on any show. I'm like, yeah, Yeah. remind me. Well, get back a little bit to the technology of it, though. Um, I've watched a couple of different things on Mandalorian and seen a couple of different like sessions on it. I was surprised though how much like on-set stuff they still had like props and, mm-hmm. and all that other yeah. kind of stuff like you don't think like oh it's virtual production like it's all just this big led string like no they used to have a lot of stuff in front oh yeah well um, that's like that... vfx in, in a nutshell right like if you want to yeah. really sell anything 90 percent of the times you're marrying it with something physical certainly yes. in the indie <clears throat> world like if you can have even if it's just there and it's a reference for the holes a piece it just anchors it in such a way that creates a really great you know illusion that pushes everything like further i think you know Mm -hmm. also because that digital needs to rise up to the level of that physical but also i think us just psychologically those two things come together and it just makes everything feel you know tangible in a way that it it you know doesn't always without yeah yeah so so there was that side of it that i was surprised still how much like prop work there was uh the other thing that surprised me was hearing how much they had to go back rotoscope and completely replace the background even yeah. because they didn't like, like they had to do that and, a and, lot and you look at it yeah. you look at it outside they're always on blue they've always got blue drapes and in ours they've always have green drapes and and <laughs> and think about that one too because it's like they didn't shoot on film why are they using blue I mean, and I mean, if they're shooting on DXLs and things like that, that's kind of not a camera that's really, you know, likes having blue in it. So I kind of wonder about that because they still do a lot of uh, of practical effects. And a lot of it was just learning and understanding that as that's gone forward, they're doing less and less um, interior green screen, blue screen stuff and more and more virtual production. And and that's because of the capabilities. I mean, the screens got faster. They were able to, to refresh the screen rates higher to do things for the, 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 for the sword fighting and that kind of stuff. But think of the look they get from the LEDs on the lightsabers. You know, that's a technology that didn't exist. That's only existed for the last two Star Wars movies. You know, they uh, they didn't have the technology to make the lightsabers gla- glow on a face. And, you, and I did, you know, stuff for Phantom Menace and remember going through round after round <laughs> after round with Pantone colors, getting the color light on the lightsaber for Taco Bell ads. You know? <laughs> that's tough. Oh, oh, I lost the light. Man, <laughs> Oh, wow. Thank you for not saying you'll fix it in post. (laughs) (laughs) We just brighten it. Yeah. But but they all, and that whole, like, you know, still having to replace the background, like, that surprised me. But at the same time, like, they probably still don't have to worry about the lighting on the characters in the scene because it's probably close enough as long as they're not completely changing. If they're just like, oh, we don't like those boxes there, hey, we're just going to quickly move them or whatever. Like that's not going to change, especially like Mandalorian, where there's a lot of reflections. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, a lot that's, of that that's one stuff. of the advantages of all of this. And, and <clears throat> people need to think about virtual production more than just artifice in that way. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a nighttime shot with a child that's not at night because you only have six hours and you can't drive yeah. them two hours to the location, those kind of things. It's an all day sunrise. So you can do languages and versions with different people and different mm-hmm. characters and different actors. You know, you got a sunrise shot for, you know, the person having breakfast on the beach and you got to do, you know, a version for a Spanish language of, you know, uh, Asian language, English, French, 
you know, for, for the, for the Canadian markets. And you have to think about those kind of things nowadays. Cool. And, and a virtual production allows that repeatability that we don't get anymore. The other thing yeah. is, is that think about a lot of the places where you, one of the things that's really cool is, is that it's, it's kind of wiping out process trailer stuff because they're going out and shooting plates or doing things and they're not, you know, you're not doing a towed vehicle with a crew of a guy like me controlling the irises on the camera as you drive through the city, you know, going in and out of dark and light places. You don't have those anymore because basically they build what they want and they put, you know, four grips on the back of it and you actually cut your crew in half by, you know, a production crew because you don't have 27 cop cars blocking the way and those kind of things. You don't think about all of that, but also think about um, Miller Creative, one of the companies I work with, does a lot for United Airlines. Mm -hmm. um, working in O'Hare Airport requires a $50 million insurance policy yeah. just to walk on the tarmac. <laughs> you have to do security and all kinds of other things that you can't do as well. Now, it's an airport. They can put people in the background using metahumans. They can have real stanchions and stuff in the shots. And you can actually see you know, the, the cost savings just in the production value because you have, A, a crew that can handle it, but working on a virtual set with people doing you know, normal ticket-taking that kind of stuff that you have in movies and all of that, that's, that's all built now. And, and that's a huge cost savings and, and a safety environment too. Think about explosions. Mm -hmm. Think about those kinds of things where somebody has to do something very dangerous. You can now have that on our skin and still get the reflections. Fire shots. I mean, I, I, you know, the Dick Wolf shows here use, um, you know, not virtual projection, but just LED screens for doing a lot of the driving stuff because it's easier to do for pickups and inserts. There's a lot of that stuff that goes on everywhere that we haven't even thought about. Um, in the post-production world, which was last weekend, Sam Nicholson came on and was talking about the work that he'd done. He's done all this stuff with Blackmagic cameras and 12K Blackmagic cameras for shooting plates. And they actually hung 85-inch television screens outside a train window and connected <laughs> them by servers. And rather than building an entire wall, they put up a display that was just big enough for the angle that they needed, and that served their purpose. Cool. And, and that's a cost savings that people, you know, they went out and bought 30 televisions at Best Buy. It, it didn't cost it. That's it, cheap. You know, it, it, a lot cheaper than, than a wraparound wall. I can tell you yeah. that right now. Oh, <laughs> you know, we start talking about panels are, are two and three and five thousand, you know, from between two thousand and five thousand dollars each for a square meter. You know, that's a lot. That gets really expensive really quickly. <laughs> Right. It really does. Dang it. That's super cool. We That brought us right on to our hour. So uh, um, We don't have another two hours to talk. Uh, <laughs> we could. Well, I guess we'll have to come back we and do could. it again, guys. We could. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, man, that was that was really good. I, I appreciate you guys. I know there's so much more we could talk about about the future and how things have changed and where things are headed. But um, is, is there anything that right at the end here just you'd like to shout out or tell anybody about that you you haven't already mentioned or want to send somebody to somewhere film yeah okay i think i found it it's uh it is actually filmscapechicago.com gary yes, yes? Sir. Yeah. Okay, i'll paste um, that into the um, but i was right actually pointing to ryan and and i was giving him the go here yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I'll, I'll i'll send it back yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, yeah, check out those guys. They're more interesting. Yeah, check them out. That's good well, stuff. And, and the thing is, 
if you don't know about Film Riot, please look it up and do, because I do know about Film Riot. It's nice to finally meet you, Ryan. Oh, um, thanks, man. And, and you know, know that there's resources for education everywhere. Um, yes. Matt and I yeah. talked last week at Post-Production World. It was kind of fun to, you know, jump on. And, and there's more of those coming. There'll be the remote com- production conference in, in February. We're going to talk about these kind of things. But but know that there's learning resources around you everywhere. Get on, you know. And, and while I'm not a fan of telling people to go to YouTube for everything, there's a lot <laughs> of content on there. But if you want to learn about Unreal Engine, go to Unreal.com. I mean, there is a, a, a massive amount. There's something like 300 terabytes of information informational videos yeah. on Unreal and how to build things in the world and work with it on Macs or PCs. It doesn't matter what you build in. Uh, you know, basically everybody, just so you know, you have to render on Windows because NVIDIA does a whole lot better than, than AMD does in that world, in my personal opinion. But, but you know, it, it's one of those things that you got to think about that. And, and um, Unreal offers a huge educational resource and, and that's the place to start at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, you guys, for, for uh, you know joining us this morning, taking time out of the day. And uh, as always, I'd like to thank the audience as well for joining us today. Uh, we have, we're doing this again, um, a different set with uh, at 1 p.m. So come back a little later this afternoon for um, – actually, I can't recall off the top of my head. What yeah. are we? It's uh, two oh, hours, results. depending on what, what time zone you are. We'll be talking about <laughs> yeah. Resolve at uh, 1 p.m. Pacific today. Uh, so come back and mm-hmm. we've got a whole mess of, of content coming this whole week, Tuesday uh, to the end of the week. So busy, busy, stay tuned. And um, yeah, thanks you guys very much. And we'll see you all next time. Awesome. Thank you. See you guys.